Welcome to Upstream Downstream, a lively civil discussion devoted to the political, policy, and cultural topics that often divide us. Upstream Downstream is presented by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communication at Shepherd University in cooperation with WSHC-FM and the Listen, Learn, Engage initiative. And now for this week's discussion. Welcome to Upstream Downstream. I'm Bianca Eisen. In December 2021, scientists in Botswana and South Africa identified a new variant of the coronavirus. Joining me today to talk about the Omicron variant is Dr. Clay Marsh. He is the Vice President and Executive Dean for Health Sciences at West Virginia University, a member of the board of the WVU Medicine, and has served under Governor Jim Justice as the West Virginia COVID czar. Clay, thank you for joining me today. Hi, Bianca. It's my pleasure. So, Clay, since the pandemic started, there have been a number of COVID variants that have come about. But what is it that makes Omicron more concerning than previous variants? Well, Bianca, there's several issues with Omicron that make it both more concerning and almost unbelievable to those of us that have been in the COVID world for the last two years. You know, the Delta variant, which is the variant that immediately preceded Omicron, was a variant that spread through India and and was the variant that Rochelle Walensky, the director of CDC, who was the head of infectious disease at Mass General Hospital, one of the Harvard affiliates, who said that Delta, the Delta variant of COVID-19, she believed was the most infectious respiratory virus she had seen in her professional lifetime. And it took the Omicron variant a total of three weeks to replace the Delta variant in the U.S. as the most common variant. The Omicron variant is very, very highly infectious in the range of measles, which means its reproductive value, the one person infected, how many new people will it infect, is in the range of 12. Delta was in the range of 5 to 8. The original virus from Wuhan in the range of 2.3 to 2.7 and the flu in the range of 1.3 to 1.6. So this is just an incredibly different variant. It infects people much more avidly. The peak number of cases we had seen in the before Omicron surge that we're in now was 303,000. We've had two or three days over a million cases, and we averaged over 800,000 cases in the week preceding. And in the last week, We have had uh, about a million new cases in children, which means one out of every 10 new cases that has been defined in children during our entire pandemic happened last week. So this is a different variant, infects people more easily, infects children more easily, and can make children sicker than the previous variants have. I understand there is research being done comparing how lethal the variants are to the original virus. Does there seem to be a trend as to how lethal it becomes as it mutates to spread more? So the virus, Bianca, as I understand it, its goal is to live. And it lives by spreading infectious-wise and not ultimately killing its host before its host can spread even more. And the and the COVID-19 virus has been really almost perfect in doing that. And previous coronaviruses like the SARS virus or the MERS virus was much more lethal, much more dangerous, but, and was another or other forms of coronavirus. But because it, it 
infected the host before the host could spread it to others, and the host got so sick, it was easy to eradicate the virus and, and quarantine people and stop the spread. The, the COVID-19 virus is much different. And so as we look at the adaptation of the virus, the Omicron variant is currently so incredibly infectious that we are hopeful that maybe there's not a number of new um, infections and variants that will form because maybe the COVID virus is not pushed to do that. And if so, this might be the part of the virus where we start to see a transition from epidemic to endemic. But as we've seen before, you know, the COVID virus has taken many twists and turns we would have never guessed. And because of that, you know, we wait to see if the Omicron variant is ultimately the final most infectious form of COVID-19 or whether COVID-19 can continue to change and challenge us, you know, far into the future. I hope that's not true. You've mentioned previously with the Delta variant that you had anticipated it would spread like an inverted V, spread rapidly, hit a wall, burn itself out. Do you expect that Omicron will follow a similar pattern? Omicron in other countries and in the U.S. has an even sharper shaped V kind of spread where it very rapidly spreads and then peaks and very rapidly comes down. And we anticipate that as that sort of curve goes up and then plateaus for a little bit as we look at the spread to more rural parts of our state and then starts to come back down, Bianca, we know that that is the first thing that will happen as we start to see the Omicron surge start to let up a little bit. But we also know that in the next two weeks or so, we would anticipate the hospital numbers peaking and then perhaps a week or so after that, get a feel for how severe the consequences might be related to people that might need an ICU stay and a ventilator stay. And then probably another two to three weeks after that to see if we pick up in the number of West Virginians who are dying from this most recent surge. So we would say that by the time the Omicron variant goes up and has that short plateau and then comes back down again, it will still likely be another six to nine weeks before we see the total impact of the of the surge start to be defined, expressed, and start to come back down. So we still have a bit of a of a turbulent road ahead of us. And we are very worried because our hospital numbers are really trending back up again. There are 957, I believe, today in West Virginia hospital beds. Our peak, which happened in August, was 1,012. And we're in a much more compromised situation today related to staffing and just fatigue of our medical staff and our hospital systems and our healthcare systems. So that is another point of great concern for us. So before Omicron came to the U.S., President Biden and Dr. Anthony Fauci both declared that any more lockdowns would be off the table. But given how rapidly this newer variant of the disease is spreading and the additional strain on our hospital systems, especially here in West Virginia, should we consider stricter day-to-day regulations, perhaps not to the extent that we had at the beginning of the pandemic, but should we be more active in trying to flatten another curve? Well, I think, Bianca, one of the the really critical indices of seeing the, any pandemic 
go from explosive worldwide to more local endemic is is both the rate of spread, but also the attitudes of the of the um, population. And I think that as we look at where we are with COVID-19 now, we see that for a number of people who have dealt with COVID-19, you know, our populace, that people are no longer really willing to voluntarily try to mitigate, you know, even related to the consistent wearing of masks in indoor areas. And, and, and I think that the governor has been really clear and, and you even see that, you know, the Congress and the Supreme Court have, you know, had a, had the perspective that creating great mandates for things are, are not where the country is or where some of the leadership, you know, wants to do. And we're seeing that not only in the U.S., but around the world, including in the U.K. and other, you know, parts of Europe and, and even in countries like Israel that have started to lessen some of those restrictions. So I think that, that trying to stay in tune with the populace, then, you know, we are uh, very strong advocates, as the governor is, for vaccines and boosters to try to keep people as actively immunologically capable of fighting any viral infection, COVID virus infection that they might get, and really encouraging people to make independent decisions to wear high-efficiency face masks and, and, and indoor in indoor settings. And some people certainly take heed to that. But when we look at our population, we see that only about 52, 53% of our total population is vaccinated. Our younger people that are at much higher risk, in my opinion, from Omicron than they have been before are vaccinated, you know, less than 30% with one vaccine and in the very low 20s with two vaccines. And even our, our most vulnerable elderly population of over 65-year-olds um, have, you know, 92% one vaccine, 82% two vaccines, but only about 55% boosters. So I think people have just started to tire of the whole COVID, you know, narrative. And while certainly from a purely public health perspective, you could make an argument that making more restrictions or requiring vaccinations to be able to enter public indoor places, et cetera, some countries like France has done, could, you know, reduce the spread of COVID-19. I think where our country is, is more that that's really being done at local and individual levels. And while certainly we've seen an absolute acceleration and amplification of spread during this Omicron variant time, that it very well might be that gaining additional, more distributed immunity across the population because of the great numbers of people that will be infected with Omicron um, may be an opportunity for us to see the spread start to be controlled or reduced a bit more. And I think from a country's perspective, you know, we had 3,000 deaths in our country yesterday, over 3,000. And we're up to, I think, 850,000 deaths in our country. Projections by Penn State is we might see another 60 or 300,000 deaths during this new, um, you know, surge from Omicron. But I think for a lot of people, 
you know, somebody said a single death is a story, a million deaths is a statistic. And I think we're at the point now where that's not really turning too many heads. And so I, I think it does represent the level of fatigue and the level of commitment to get back to where we were. And when you think about some of the guidelines from CDC, you, you start to see compromise between the public health medical science sector and the requirement to have workers to keep hospitals open, keep planes flying, and have critical services. Because we know from studies from recently from the NBA uh, data set that, you know, the still infectiousness with Omicron of five days in people that have been previously the day before testing negative or two or more days before testing negative is still in the 30 to 50% range. So, so I think you're seeing more, you know, trying to our government and, and our populace embracing that balance between good public health and safety and maintenance of, you know, societal, you know, not only the economy, but also things that we like to do like sporting events and concerts and those kind of things. And I think that that behavioral sort of approach is really what might be the start of this endemic phase of the virus, even if the virus is still very infectious. So, Clay, given the number of breakthrough cases among fully vaccinated citizens, is the argument for having a vaccine diminished by this? I don't think so. And Bianca, the real, if you look at the, at the real impact of vaccines, historically, they've been trying to save lives. And I think here we would say save lives and try to protect our vital health care assets because, as we know, when hospitals get overwhelmed with patients and health care systems, all the care goes down, not just for COVID, but for all other acute medical illnesses and even some of the safety and quality measures start to wane as people become overwhelmed and things become more like a triage system, kind of a battlefield approach to, to healthcare. Um, so the vaccines are still doing a good job of reducing the severity of the of the impact on people. We know that, you know, having, being fully vaccinated reduces your risk of hospitalization if you're over 65 by 31 times. We know that a recent study of children who are hospitalized uh, with COVID-19, 96% were unvaccinated. And in Israel, where only 14% of their population is not vaccinated, Every one of the people that required the highest level of life support called ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is really just a bedside cardiopulmonary bypass machine like used for heart surgeries, that every one of those patients were unvaccinated. So the vaccines are still helping reduce the most severe consequences of COVID-19. And we know that even though people can break through um, on their vaccines, particularly if they are greater than, you know, four months from their first two vaccines or greater than three months from their booster, that the ability of the vaccines to maintain a protection against hospitalization, ICU admission, ventilator use, or death is still very substantial. And so the vaccines are doing their job. We just got spoiled because the vaccines did their job and so much more in reducing the spread of COVID-19. But the Omicron variant is so incredibly infectious 
that that doesn't seem to be quite as good. And even in the Israeli experience, and they're the only country that's really, you know, more systematically started a second booster dose, they also found that they did not really make a huge difference in the spread of COVID-19 with that next booster dose but they saw a benefit of their most vulnerable people related to hospitalization and death. So it still is working. The vaccines are working well. They're just not able to overcome the transmissibility, the infectiousness of the Omicron variant to reduce that particular parameter of of this surge. You're listening to Upstream Downstream, sponsored by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communications and the Listen, Learn, Engage initiative at Shepherd University. We are joined today to talk about the Omicron variant by Dr. Clay Marsh, who is the Vice President and Executive Dean for Health Sciences at West Virginia University, a member of the Board of WVU Medicine, and Governor Justice's COVID czar for West Virginia. So Clay, considering the amount of breakthrough infections, do you see this disease becoming something that requires a yearly booster, such as how we treat flu shots? You know, Bianca, I think that without committing myself to you know, to pretending like I know the future of COVID-19. Because I have to say that uh, the more you experience this virus, the more respect you get for it, but also the more that, you know, we would have never predicted the Delta strain variant after we got through a very rough winter of 2020-2021 and would have never expected the Omicron variant. So I do think that once the virus becomes more endemic, meaning that it's not spreading globally at a rate that is, you know, rapid and with loss of death, loss of life like we've seen it, but becomes more of an ingrained local, you know, like influenza, which is not a totally benign virus either. But I do think that we will likely look for at least the foreseeable future at having booster doses that do address some of the variant changes that might happen. But as far as wholesale variant changes, which has really been the hallmark of the virus, which is one of the reasons why we're still in this pandemic phase, if the Omicron variant, which is as infectious as measles is, which is one of the highest transmissible viruses recorded, then I think that we will, as you suggest, be into the yearly or however many months, you know, semi-yearly booster campaign to try to help us be more specifically informed at our immune system level about what what is the small variation in COVID-19 that's happened over the past so many months. If it makes a wholesale change like it did from Delta to Omicron, I think that that, that changes the equation a lot. And we may be back to where we are right now, you know, dealing with whatever that new variant is. The virus will continue to make genetic changes. And so, you know, that's just part of the replication cycle. But the question is, you know, it's hard to believe that the Omicron variant came along and in three weeks outstripped the Delta variant that was just crazily infectious. So while I would say that it seems like the Omicron variant may be the peak of infectivity, and this may now, you know, with the immunity we're gaining, start to turn this into the endemic phase. But boy, saying that, it would be really not very smart, given the lack of understanding we've had at all parts of this pandemic of this virus. So so I would just say that part of it 
is related to, most of it's related to what happens with the virus. But at some point, we will be, I think, looking at that kind of uh, an approach for COVID-19. So, Clay, I have read that various experts believe that those who have become infected with the Omicron variant do gain a temporary immunity to Omicron afterwards, and possibly even Delta. From your experience, does this seem to be the case? Well, that's what I'm reading, too. And, and, and that is certainly the positive, you know, view of what's going on right now, because we're going to have at least temporary immunity to a whole number of people, more than we've ever seen before, because this variant is is infecting people at rates that are just, you know, multiples of what we've seen even in the Delta surge. So, yes, it does appear that there is collateral immunological capability against other forms of COVID-19 and to the Omicron variant itself from having native immunity. Some people have said that the combination of being fully vaccinated and and also having been infected and recovered, say from Omicron, is super immunity as opposed to herd immunity. And I think that those are nice words to create. But the truth is we don't know how long the immunity will last. And like I say, we don't know if this is the ultimate form of COVID-19 that, you know, it's COVID-19, which wants to live and to spread. If this gives it the optimal ability to do both and it starts to create, you know, some sort of reduction in the new variants that have popped out that have just been incrementally harder to control one after another, then I think that this immunity will help this viral pandemic become endemic. But that requires the virus to cooperate with us, which thus far the virus has not been a very good partner in its cooperation uh, goals, at least from my perspective. As you've mentioned, Clay, COVID has gone through a variety of genetic changes, and it almost feels like every few months we're facing a new variant of this virus. Is there a limit to how much a virus can mutate? There's no limit. And, and you know, you've got a group of real experts out there, you know, just like we've seen all the, you know, all the, the, the projected um, um, outcome groups that are looking at, you know, trying to make predictions about prediction modeling groups. That's what I was looking for. Trying to make predictions about what's going to happen. I mean, again, Rochelle Walensky, who's director of CDC, very smart woman, you know, head of infectious disease at one of the Harvard-affiliated hospitals, said that the Delta variant was the most infectious respiratory virus she's ever seen. And so you would have absolutely guessed there couldn't have been another form of COVID more infectious than Delta. But Omicron came along, which is off a completely different part of the family tree, and it outcompeted head-to-head Delta in the U.S. and replaced Delta in three weeks, which is stunning. I, I mean, it's really almost unbelievable. So because we saw Omicron come out of the blue and all of a sudden be three times as infectious as Delta, which was three times as infectious as the United Kingdom variant Alpha, which was three or four times more infectious than the, you know, three times, two, three times more infectious than the Wuhan variant, I would say I would not underrate this virus. 
And although it's almost hard to believe that we would see something more infectious than Omicron, since Omicron is infectious in the range of the measles, which has an R0 level. We talk about the reproductive value, one person infected, how many new people can they infect? You know, the Wuhan variant was uh, 2.3 to 2.7. The United Kingdom variant was 4 to 5. The influenza is 1.2 to 1.6. The Delta variant was 5 to 8. And the Omicron variant is about 12. So it's hard to believe something's going to get higher than that. But boy, if you didn't leave that possibility open and you've been involved with uh, with this virus, COVID-19, then you haven't learned much. So I would say I, it'd be hard to imagine something to be more infectious, but I would not take that off the table. There's been previous speculation that the population would need to be roughly between 70 and 85 percent vaccinated in order to stop the spread of the virus. Uh, you mentioned that just over half of the population is, but given at how much it's spreading, are we getting close to the point in time where we can just ride out the virus through the rest of the pandemic? You know, Bianca, I think that's an important question. People have talked about herd immunity, but there's probably no real herd immunity because we know that some of the fully vaccinated people have been vaccinated a real long time ago and have not been boosted. Other people have been vaccinated and boosted, but they've been boosted a, a long time, longer time ago. And so they may not be as, you know, freshly immunologically ready for Omicron. Some people have had vaccine booster and Omicron. Other people have just had Omicron. So, so I think that what you're seeing is that there is going to be a mixed, but much higher level of immune capability against Omicron, and as you implied, perhaps cross-referencing with some other variants of COVID-19 than we've ever seen before. And that's because, number one, we are more vaccinated as a country than we have been before. And number two, Omicron and other forms of COVID-19 continue to really ratchet up their ability to infect other people. So more and more people are becoming infected and have previously been infected with COVID-19. So at some point, there's that, you know, juxtaposition where the virus becomes more controlled. But to say that we're going to control COVID-19 would be almost laughable. I think what will happen is we will live in better balance with COVID-19. And while we'll still see a number of deaths from COVID-19, we as a country will see those as acceptable, you know, collateral damage from the virus. We will continue to offer updated vaccines. We will hopefully continue to create more treatment options like we've done with the oral pills, the Paxlovid, the Pfizer pill, the, you know, new antibody cocktail, the Citrovimab, which is from GSK that works better against Omicron, the Omicron variant. So I think as we go, treatments will pick up. And we'll come to, uh, you know, to a balance with the virus like we have with other, you know, respiratory viruses, influenza being a good example. And we'll see more people die a year of COVID-19 still, but we will accept those as, as part of the, you know, part of what we will be able to live with. And that then will start, you know, to be the annual dance that we will continue to play with COVID-19. And I think it's really important to note 
And again, CDC, the recent recommendations as far as, you know, the approaching people who are positive of COVID-19 or exposed, those are really another piece of evidence that there is a balance now being struck between maintenance of our life with COVID, i.e. the long-term dance that we'll do, and protection against the spread, rapid spread of the most infectious form of COVID-19 that we've seen today, and the impact on our overly full hospital system, more patients in hospital beds today than ever before in our entire pandemic, more children in hospital beds today than ever before in our entire pandemic. So at a time we're seeing more surge on our vital health systems, we're also seeing some releasing of restrictions in our public health, you know, guidance systems, which means that we as a country are making that step into dealing with this virus as just part of our life, as opposed to trying to defeat it, which of course we haven't been able to and likely will not be able to. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Clay Marsh, for taking the time to join us today. Clay, thank you again. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Bianca. I enjoyed it. I'd also like to thank our producer, Sarah Burke, and our acting director, Greg Fields. Thank you all so much for listening, and until next week, I'm Bianca Eisen. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Upstream Downstream, presented by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communications at Shepherd University. To learn more about the Stubblefield Institute, other programs such as the Listen, Learn, Engage initiative or the American Conversation series, or to become a friend of the Institute, please go online to stubblefieldinstitute.org.